Have you ever really messed up? Not just messed up, I mean really messed up. Oh boy. Well, if we go back to the year 1986, the Red Sox had not won a World Series since 1918. And of course, as you know, the World Series is the best out of seven games. And by game number six, the Red Sox had already three wins under their belt. If they could win this game, they would be world champions after all these years. Well, the game was played on a Saturday night, October 25. At the end of nine innings, the game was tied, so it went into extra innings. At the top of the inning, the Boston Red Sox scored two points. Now, if they could just get three outs, the game would be over. The World Series would be theirs. Then it was the bottom of the tenth. The Mets had their chance. They also scored twice. So again, it's a tie game. There are two outs, and the winning run is on third base. There's a slow hit to the first baseman. All he has to do is scoop it up and touch the bag, and the game is tied. They go on to the 11th inning and so forth, but that's all he has to do. But that's not what happened. In fact, here's the play that... Uh, cost him all kinds of headache. There it goes, the first bag, scoop it up. Oh, it gets past him. The guy from third goes in. There's all kinds of excitement. And now the momentum has shifted, it's changed. They take this game, they take the next game, and the Mets win the World Series. So the blame started on Buckner, on every... Oops. Maybe something got messed up there. Sox spoil their own party. Bouncing ball hunts Buckner. Even Tom Brokaw. You remember Tom Brokaw? He said, Buckner's hoping that game seven will get him out of his, you know, stress and so on. Um, <clears throat> but Bill Buckner, he was hammered and hammered hard for that play. He was an all-star player but soon became the scapegoat for a frustrated fan base. And he didn't just get some of the blame for the lost game. He got all the blame for the lost game. Buckner was heckled. He was booed. Countless magazines blamed him alone for the loss of the World Series. The comments were ruthless. Buckner even started to receive death threats, some from his own hometown fans. A sports announcer from Boston, Ron uh, Borges, I think, said, I'm from Boston, but no matter what you do to Bill Buckner, it's not bad enough. In 1993, Bill Buckner moved away from Boston for good. Can you imagine how he felt? An easy ground ball in the most important game of the year, and he makes a rookie mistake. And if you look at his career, he, he did a lot of great things. I told you he was an all-star player and he set a bunch of records and so on. But to this day, those that remember Bill Buckner are not for the good, but for that grounder that went between his legs. The time that he messed up. And he had to live with that going forward. 
Today we're continuing our series, Now Converted, Lessons from the Life of Peter. This is the third and final piece. The last time we saw how Peter slept with the others as he was asked to watch and to pray. We saw how he denied his Lord three times. We saw how he instantly felt shame and condemnation. Not because Jesus sought to shame him, but his actions pretty well did that on its own. We saw how he fell on the very spot Jesus had prayed just hours earlier, wishing that he himself might die. Why? Because he blew it. Big time. And so where does the story go from here? Is that it for Peter? Is that the end of the story? Well, as it relates to Jesus, we know that he had a mock trial that Friday morning. We know that he was scorned and he was ridiculed. We know he fainted under the cross, the burden of the cross, many times. We know they nailed him to a tree. And according to the Gospel of Mark, in about six hours, Jesus died. He endured the torment of crucifixion, says, from the third hour to the ninth hour. Generally takes as many as 18 to as many as 48 hours, but Jesus' life was crushed from him. So can you imagine... Something's not wanting to communicate here. There we go. Can you imagine the shame you would feel even if you'd done everything you could do? Even still, you'd feel terrible. I mean, Jesus, your best earthly friend, spit upon, despised, shamed, beaten, mocked, ridiculed, betrayed, and then suffer and die. The most painful, the most, most torturesome death possible. That's why the cross was invented. The sole purpose was to shame and embarrass and cause excruciating pain. But then on top of all that, you disowned him. You disowned Jesus with cursing, no less. You didn't stand for him. And even though he warned you that it would happen, and even after you promised emphatically that even if all were to to run and flee, not I, I'll stand to the death. And so now, on Friday night, now all through Sabbath, Peter's left to contemplate all of that. But then Sunday morning comes. Praise the Lord. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. I put these verses on the screen, but we'll get into our Bibles here in just a moment. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices and they, uh, that they might come and anoint him. Speaking of Jesus. And it says, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the, to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? I don't know, but they keep going. 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And then it says in verse 5 of chapter 16 of Mark, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. What? He's not here? He's risen? This is too much to believe. This is good news. Is this true? And then the message continues. But go tell his disciples. And what? And Peter. There's a lot right there. Apparently all of heaven knows the agony that has been Peter's. Go tell the disciples, but make sure you don't leave out the one that's heavy on our hearts. Make sure you go tell Peter. And here's what I want you to tell him. Tell them that he, Jesus, is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him, as he said to you. Desire of Ages 793 says, Since the death of Christ, Peter had been bowed down with remorse. I can only imagine. His shameful denial of the Lord and the Savior's look of love and anguish were ever before him. I imagine that look Jesus gave is etched in his mind. What kind of a look would it have been? Of love? Of grace? Of pity? Of all the disciples, Peter had suffered most bitterly. To him the assurance is given that his repentance is accepted and his sin forgiven. He's mentioned by name. Tell the disciples and Peter. I want Peter to know it's okay. Peter, I want you to know that you're forgiven. Special message. Luke 24, verse 9 says, They returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. They did not believe them. This is not a time for joking, ladies. This is serious. No, I am being serious. This was the message I was given. Tell the disciples and Peter. And it says in verse 12 of Luke 24, But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Can you imagine? This is like music to Peter's ears. He needed that, that extra encouragement that I haven't cast you away. And he longs to see Jesus. To say this, this speech that perhaps he's rehearsed. If I only had a chance, if only Jesus wasn't dead, somehow I'd try and fix this. I'd apologize. And now he hears that he has risen. And the only thing he knows to do is to run. And he's running to the tomb. He's got to see for himself. And it says, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. He departed and marveled to himself at what had happened. So he hasn't seen Jesus yet. 
but these ladies are telling the truth. He's not there. Still Sunday. Now we're jumping to John's account. We started Mark, and we went to Luke, and we went to John. I'm kind of handpicking based on which ones share some details about Peter that I think are interesting. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, this is Sunday, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. So here they're having a prayer meeting. Here they're supporting one another. We know what they did to Jesus. We all were connected to Jesus. Something is happening. We're not sure what's happening. We're just going to stay in here, close the doors. And just lay low. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Like a balm to their hearts. This person they were following, this God they were seeking to serve, is now in the room again with them. And he says, Peace to you. It's okay. I'm here. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this is late Sunday. The first time he appears to the disciples, but Thomas, you will note, is not there. And in other accounts that we won't take time to read, he refuses to believe unless he sees Jesus for himself. But this is the first time Peter lays eyes on the risen Jesus. Let's go to that second time Jesus appears to them. It says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, still in Jerusalem, and Thomas is with them this time. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, same message, peace to you. So now this is the second time. A week has passed. So tell the disciples and Peter. Peter runs. He checks it out. Later that evening, Jesus appears in the room and they have this, what seems to be a brief interaction. We don't really know. I'd love to know more. But there's no direct communication with Peter in that interaction that we have. Then an entire week goes by. A lot of time to think and contemplate. This is good news, but what does all this mean? And still, I imagine for Peter, there's still this this residue, this unresolved issue. Yes, Jesus has been gracious, but I haven't had my chance to make things right, perhaps. A week goes by. And I imagine he's still hanging on to that promise. Jesus is going to go ahead of you to Galilee. But a week later, they're still in Jerusalem. So Jesus again comes in their midst, says, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, He sees the evidence. And Thomas believes. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those 
who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you who haven't seen. Did you get to inspect Jesus' hands and his side? I like this quotation from Desire of Ages. And somehow I keep having issues here. Let me start it again. It says, Christ's first work on earth after his resurrection was to convince his disciples of his undiminished love. Don't you like that? And tender regard for them. To give them proof that he was their living Savior. So much of the time we get this idea that Jesus says, I have this mission to do and I need these 12 around me to help me accomplish what I'm doing, where I'm going, and now I'm resurrected and I have a mission and here I'm doing, here I'm going. But what we see actually is Jesus praying most earnestly for the 12. Asking that their faith would be strong enough that, he would, that God would bring them through these times of trial and heartache and temptation. He's praying mostly. He's investing mostly in the twelve. And then after he's raised, I have big things to do. Yes, to invest again in those, well, now eleven. First thing. It's first work. Show his undiminished love and his tender regard for them. But even again in that second interaction, we don't see a personal conversation with Peter. But I imagine Peter's still thinking, tell the disciples and Peter that they will see him in Galilee. Now Galilee is at the north end, I'm sorry, this place that I have here. How do you say that? Tabga. That's on the north end of Galilee. That's where Peter's house was. Capernaum is there. Um, Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount there on the north end. How many of you have been there? Anybody here have been to that part of Galilee? I thought a few, yes. <clears throat> Davina, I think, has been there. Um, but all of this interaction initially is happening in Jerusalem. But Galilee is not just down the road a few blocks, but it's a good 100 miles. So if you go 20 miles in a day, you're looking at five days. I don't know how determined they were to get to Galilee, but again, you're looking at a significant period of time that passes. All we really know is sometime in that 40 days that Jesus was here before he ascended, this interaction will take place in Galilee, in Tavga. And they're quite confident that that's where much of the fishing happened then because it's still where much of the fishing happens today. Why? Because there is a freshwater spring. In fact, uh, here on the left side, that's a beach. Of course, there's a big uh, place of worship right behind there, like so many places, but they have at least preserved the beach so you can still walk that beach. And whether it's exactly that place or not, it makes a whole lot of sense that this is where Jesus would have called the disciples. Right there. And again, why right there? Because just at the end where it looks like the grass starts, there's a spring that was flowing then and it's still flowing there now. 
And then this little tiny picture here, what is that bunch of green stuff? Well, that's just algae. Because the spring water is warmer than the seawater, allowing the algae to grow. And that algae attracts fish, especially during the colder seasons. So it makes a very popular spot for thousands of years to fish. And Peter's house is just a mile and a half away. And so I think it's very likely that here is where Jesus appears to the disciples, I don't know, two weeks after his resurrection? Two and a half? We know the Passover week is over. Disciples are probably looking at themselves saying, okay, well, we don't really have anything to do here in Jerusalem anymore. What does life look like for us now? I suppose we could go home. Are we still going to do ministry? And if so, what does that look like? What does God want us to do? And again, they have that whole week of walking and talking. Perhaps remembering some of the places Jesus ministered along the way. It's not a big area. Tell the disciples and Peter. I'm going to... See you in Galilee. And so now I want you to open up your Bibles. We're going to stay the rest of this uh, time together in the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John's the only one that records this part of the story for us. John, chapter 21, verse 1. We read, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the same as the Sea of Galilee, just another word for it. And in this way, he showed himself. If we skip to verse 14, it says, this is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So here Jesus shows himself, and verse 2 it says to Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which we know to be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them something very profound. I'm going to go fishing. That's what he knows. It's been a while since I've just been out fishing. I'm going to go fishing. And so they said to him, we're going to go with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night, they caught how much? Nothing. Well, Peter, it doesn't look like you still have it. Well, you know how it goes. Feast or famine. Sometimes we catch something, sometimes we catch nothing. But I still enjoyed the time with you all. Verse 4, But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They couldn't perceive. It will tell us later in the story that they're about 300 feet off the shore. And that's a busy area. There's probably lots of other people there milling around. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you had any food? And they answered him, No. And verse 6, he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, 
and you will find them. Or, excuse me, find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Is this bringing back any memories? Same place? Same idea? Try the other side of the boat? As if that's going to make any difference? And again, a multitude of fish. Verse 7, Therefore, that disciple who we know to be John, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It's the Lord! And I love this part. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. That first time, he runs to see the empty tomb. Now Jesus is on the shore. Quick, let me get myself presentable. And then, splash, he's in the water. And he's swimming for the bank. It's not, I can't wait for this boat to hurry up. Who cares about the fish? Let him go. Cut the lines. No, I'm just, I'm in. That's not a half heart, Pastor Jeff. That's a whole heart. Saying, Jesus is on the shore. I'm going there. Beautiful. Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, or 300 feet, dragging the net with, uh, uh, the net with fish. Verse 9, Then as soon as they came to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Bring what you have. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And then Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise, the fish. Verse 14 is now the third time Jesus showed himself to disciples after he was raised from the dead. But we're not done yet. Verse 15 is important to us. So when they'd eaten breakfast, what did they talk about over breakfast? I don't know. I'd like to know. But maybe there was that time in the conversation when it's been a lot of chatter back and forth, a lot of excitement. And then once that initial hype, if you will, kind of starts to wind down just a little bit, and maybe there's that pregnant pause. And Jesus thinks to himself, now's the time. Now's the time. And Jesus said to Simon Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. And then again he says to him, a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And then verse 17, He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Really what we have here is the reinstating, if you will, of Peter. Three times he denies his Lord and three times he confesses his Lord. He was certainly a leader of the twelve. But in this open sin, if you will, it required an open confession. And I imagine in part Jesus saying, I know, but these others around you also need to know. Unity is important. We need to be on the same page. Everyone needs to know that, yes, Peter, you've been humbled. You have recognized that you can't be overconfident. You've recognized your need to be watchful unto prayer. You've recognized that without Christ, it's this easy to stumble and to fail. In fact, Luke twenty-two thirty-two is actually prophetic. This is before Jesus even dies, but he says, and we looked at this last time, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art, what's the word? Converted. Strengthen thy brethren. Or we could say, feed thy sheep. It's really a hint that all the way up until this point, Peter hasn't been converted. He's had the half heart tucked into his suit. And maybe we're, we're good at disguising. You did that a little bit. You disguise the half heart. So I can't really tell, is that a full heart or a half heart? But I can tell by the sweeping, it's a half heart. And could it be this morning that we, walking with Jesus, ministering with Jesus, giving Bible studies with Jesus, having visits with Jesus, whatever it might be, with Jesus, we're doing it with a half heart. And more than anything else, Jesus longs to wake us up to our Laodicean state and say, I want you to have a whole heart. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with half your heart, with half your soul, and with half your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. No, 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 with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your strength. Acts of the Apostles 5.15 says, Peter's own experience of sin and suffering and repentance had prepared him. Not until he'd learned his weakness could he know the believer's need of dependence on Christ. Do you know your weakness? 
If so, let that only reveal to you your need of dependence on Jesus. Amid the storm of temptation, he had come to understand that man can walk safely only as in utter distrust he relies upon the Savior. Confidence can't be in me. Confidence has to be in Jesus. A hundred percent. Or I'll fall. Says it here too. Now converted and accepted, he was not only to seek to save those without the fold, but was to be a shepherd of the sheep. Now converted. After all this time, after all this history, after all the ups and downs, after walking on water, now, on the Sea of Galilee, he's finally converted. And he trades in his half heart for a whole heart. Now converted. He was not only to seek and save those without the fold, but those to be a shepherd, or was to be a shepherd of the sheep. Christ mentioned to Peter only one condition of service. Lovest thou me? This is the essential qualification. Though Peter might possess every other, he was talented, was he not? Yet without the love of Christ, he could not be a faithful shepherd over the flock of God. Knowledge, benevolence, eloquence, zeal, all are essential in the good work. But without the love of Christ in the heart, the work of the Christian minister, and we're all ministers, is a what? Failure. So I can have knowledge. I can have benevolence or kindness. I can be eloquent. I can have zeal. But if love for Jesus is not in my heart, I'm a failure. The conversation continues in verse 18. We get the indication from Spirit of Prophecy that this is the part of the conversation that he has with Peter by himself. And we actually get a little bit of a hint of that in the Scripture here as well. But in some way, somehow, it shifts a little bit. It changes. And now it's just Peter and Jesus. And Jesus said to him, there's a hint, Peter, feed my sheep. Most assuredly I say to you, Sorry, that's where I should have started. Most of you, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. You had your own dreams for yourself. You had your own dreams for your life, for where you're going to settle down, who you're going to marry, your kids, and so on, how you're going to retire, where you're going to... You had your own dreams. But when you're old, another prophecy here, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. In ancient times, this expression, will stretch out your hands, everyone knew what that meant. That was crucifixion. This 
This he spoke, verse 19, signifying by what death he would glorify God. Remember, he said, I'm willing to die for you. And here, Jesus is saying, that's exactly what's going to happen. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Peter, follow me. You're going to be crucified, but you just keep following me. The half-heart, Peter, he would have said something and it would have been loud and it would have been wrong. Is it true? Desire of Ages 8.15 says, Peter was not disheartened by the revelation. He felt willing to suffer any death for his Lord. Almost as if he's thankful that I have an opportunity to glorify you in this way. And the Christian tradition is, I want to be crucified upside down because I'm not worthy to die as my Lord died. And then read two more verses. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. That's John again. Who also had learned, sorry, had leaned on his breast at the, at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? All the description of, of John. But Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? What's going to happen to John? Is he going to die too? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Peter, you follow me. He's saying, Peter, I have different jobs and roles for each of you. In fact, according to tradition, Peter, by the time this is written down as a gospel by John Boy, Peter's already been crucified. But not John. He writes this gospel. He sees Jerusalem siege. He sees the temple torn down. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He ends up writing Revelation. He's an old man. What Jesus has for you may not be the same as what Jesus has for another. But the point is the same. You follow me, Jesus says whether it's to write books or whether it's to die on a tree, you follow me. And from every indication, that's exactly what Peter does. From that moment, Peter's a changed man. I mean, before his fall, Peter was always speaking unadvisedly, from the impulse of the moment. He's always ready to correct other people and to express his mind, to give just a piece of my mind. But the converted Peter was very different. He retained his former fervor, but the grace of Christ regulated his zeal. He was no longer impetuous and self-confident and self-exalted, but rather he was calm. Controlled, teachable. And as the new man, 
Peter could feed God's sheep. And throughout Acts, we see Peter, but he's, he's different. Peter is humble. He's a powerful leader for Jesus Christ, but he's humble. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's Peter that preaches boldly, and 3,000 souls are added to them in a day. We see Peter healing various people in the book of Acts. It's Peter himself that makes the call to repent and be converted. You ever heard the expression, it takes one to know one? I see what you're doing. I see how you're doing it. It seems to me like a little bit of a half heart. I know what that looks like. I've been there. Repent. Be converted. Give Jesus your whole heart. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come. Somehow we think half a heart is easier because I have to do half the job. No, half a heart is worse. Trying to straddle the fence, Jesus on this side and the world on that side, you're miserable in both sides of this thing. Just put both feet firmly on one side and have the joy that God longs to give you. That times of refreshing may come. It was Peter that was led by God through a special vision to take the message to the Gentiles, was it not? It's Peter who stands up as a leader in Acts chapter 15 and helps keep the church united rather than splitting apart and to move forward with mission. I can't help but think of this expression that's one of my favorites. There is no limit to the usefulness of the one who putting self aside makes room for the working of the Holy Spirit upon his heart. We could say his whole heart and lives a life. Here it is, wholly consecrated to God. The person that does that, there's no limit what God can do. There's no limit what God can do through you and through your ministry, through your family, through your workplace. If you're giving your whole heart, be wholly consecrated. Acts of the Apostles 5.16 says, The Savior's manner of dealing with Peter had a lesson for him and his brethren. I think we could safely say, and for us. Although Peter had denied his Lord guilty, the love with which Jesus bore him had never faltered. Isn't that beautiful? Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul could say that. Peter could say that. We can say that. Continuing with the quote, and as the apostles should take up the work of ministering the word to others, he was to meet the transgressor with patience, sympathy, and forgiving love. Remembering his own weakness and failure, he was to deal with the sheep and lambs committed to his care as tenderly as Christ had dealt with him. Isn't it all too easy, though, in our humanness to become impatient with people? Come on, get with the program! 
What are you doing? Why are you making such a stupid choice? Again. And we may not say it out loud, but, but it's there in our attitude. It's hidden there in a piece of our heart. And we're critical. We're fault-finding. But if we're like Jesus, we're going to be patient, sympathetic, forgiving. We're going to deal with him tenderly. I mean, at the end of the day, if you only knew what they were dealing with, you, wouldn't you be nicer? If you only knew the issues in their family, in their closest relationships, what they had to deal with at work this week. But we're so quick to take it personally. Oh, they're taking a shot at me. Just be kind. Just be gracious. Just be patient. Here's some words penned by Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. In the context of this story, it means a little thing, a little, has more meaning to me now, I could, I could say. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, what? Abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter felt the abundant mercy of God. And then in verse 6 it says, Now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor, glory, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of your faith. Spirit Prophecy also told us these very words are written for believers in every age, but that these verses have special significance for those living at the time of the end. Is your faith genuine? Have you been converted? Are you serving with a whole heart? That's the question. And maybe you're saying, I want to do that. How do I do that? I love this quotation. This is our last thing this morning. Christ Object Lessons 156. 159, it's a prayer. Be a good one to pray every day, I think. It says, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. Is there a more truthful statement than that? Lord, take my heart, for I can't give it. It's thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, un-Christ-like self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can, can flow through my soul. That's the humble prayer that he wants his people to pray. That's the prayer that I want to pray. 
that the Lord that can search my heart and my mind will be able to point out those places where I'm only half surrendered, only half hearted. And I can say, Lord, do a work in me. Do whatever you need to do. So I can be fully and totally yours. Do you want to do that this morning? Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I imagine all of us here have blown it significantly. But we're so thankful that you don't deal with us like society and and the Boston community dealt with poor Bill Buckner when he made his mistake. But Lord, the reality is our mistakes have been much bigger, much greater, more humiliating. But in love and in tenderness, in grace, in mercy, you keep pursuing us, seeking our hearts, our whole hearts, because you want to give us life and life more abundantly. So Lord, may all fear be pushed aside. May we pursue you with our whole heart. May our past failings only reveal to us more poignantly how much we need to depend on you fully and you alone. And by your grace, may you see us through. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.